0: You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our
1: mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode. Thank you again for leaving comments on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website. We love hearing from y'all and it means a lot to us when you do comment and you leave even advice on the podcast, so thank you so much. Today, we have a very interesting person. She comes from a really elaborate background. She's done a lot of things outside of oil and gas. So we're really going to understand, you know, what made her get into energy and really why she's so passionate about ESG. So Kayla Hand is the Managing Director and Head of ESG for Quantum Energy Partners. Before joining Quantum in 2020, she served as Director of Global Sustainability and Regulatory Affairs at Crown Holdings. Prior to Crown Holdings, she was Director of Environmental Sustainability in Asia-Pacific, Middle East, and North Africa for PepsiCo. She also led corporate sustainability partnerships at the World Wildlife Fund and was part of the Environmental Science Project at NASA. Kayla is a sustainability professional with over 15 years of experience and passion for the environment and social sustainability. She's simply amazing. She has multiple degrees and we're just so excited that she actually got into the energy side of the business, given her amazing background. And we just can't wait for y'all to hear more about her. Hello, Kayla. Thank you for joining us.
2: Hi, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this opportunity.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Veril Energy Solutions.
1: Did you know that Veril has been around since 1947? They're originally known for their drill bits, but through several acquisitions, investments, and rebranding, they now offer a diversified portfolio in drilling and completions. One of their core competencies is actually global manufacturing of consumable downhole products. They solve the industry supply chain problems. We've chosen to partner with
0: Veril because they simply get it. They focus on their employees, they're committed to diversity and inclusion, and they know their only true sustainable advantage is their people. To learn more and stay up to date, please go to
1: www.veril.com. Veril Energy Solutions, Beyond Technology, Beyond Normal.
0: Kayla. So what's really cool about Jamie's intro is that no one would think that you're coming from a small town in the middle of the Brazilian Amazon. I mean, you've conquered the world. And it's cool to know that you came from a small little town from Brazil. And you mentioned that your father worked in the mining industry, your mother was a teacher, you had aspirations to one day learn English, you liked like to listen to the music when you were younger. And you know, maybe not know necessarily what they were saying in the lyrics, but, you know, one day you were going to go to the US and learn a little bit more English and new cultures, which you were always interested in inspiring to get out one day from Brazil. You grew up in a low slash middle income, but with a very extremely hardworking family, which, you know, definitely shows in how working you are today. So it's come from when you were a young girl. Can you tell us a little bit about what life was
2: like growing up in Brazil? And what were your aspirations when you were a little girl? Oh my, Maciel, you guys are gonna uncover some secrets here that I've never developed in other settings. So here we go. Well, you're right. I come from a very humble beginnings, very humble family, very hardworking. Primarily my heritage, both on my father and my mother's side had been farmers up until my generation, right? So actually until my, my mom and dad's generation. So both my grandparents, were farmers. And I grew up, you know, in a very small town, about, you know, at the time, maybe 100,000 inhabitants, and today, double than that. But it felt very urban, because I lived in the city, it was very structured, like a city neighborhood, and although different than what would have for a city living here in the U.S. But that background with grandparents who were farmers gave me access to both worlds right living in the city but also as early as i remember going back to the farms with my grandparents and experiencing a lifestyle where my grandparents did everything from scratch so i was the type of kid who would eat okra (laughs) (laughs) and we grew up with eating everything that was put on the table we grew up climbing on trees and grabbing fruits from you know fresh and eating Fruits that, you know, was just ripened on the tree and swimming in little lakes and being able to fish. And sometimes at my grandparents, I remember early on in my life going to bed and hearing this really beautiful howl in the background. And my grandfather saying, hey, that's a jaguar. Go to bed. (laughs) Oh my <laughs> go to sleep, it's sleep time. And he used to use that to make the kids all quiet down, go to bed and hear the howling on the background. But it was really a jaguar. He was just using the sound of the jaguar to scare us, right? So I grew up with these beautiful memories of being really close to nature, really close to what the land can give to you, and this ability to live off of the land Directly, like in a very raw way. I mean, my grandmother even sometimes wouldn't have sugar at home. She used to make melas, and it was the most delicious things because even without knowing everything was organic, right? And this idea of farm to table, man, it was farm to table really immediately. It was so healthy. And I grew up as a very, you know, very free kid because this ability to be on the farm and going, and the farms normally, in my time back then, were very of actually at the the edge of the forest. So your property would have the back of the property would be like pristine, untouched forest. So you would always have this as a little kid, this wondering, like, how is it on the other side? What if I cross, right? And normally the little rivers and the creeks and the farm would be at at the back of the property as well. So you always were very close and these mouths that comes from the forest early in the morning, the smoky kind of morning looking like the rains, the torrential rains. So all of that is part of, you know, who I am today because of what it gave me in terms of experience and how curious it made me early on about how nature functions, the interdependency between what Earth gives us and what we take back and how we make a living, right? So, That's a little bit about my background, and that influenced a lot what I do today. But obviously, that is the incipient little seed that led to many other, you know, interests and what I do today. But if you think about the core, that's pretty much where everything started.
1: You know, it's really amazing because you picture you in this small little town, the forest, and just like Brazil. And it's just, it seems so natural. But then at the same time, it kind of seems a little foreign. Like, how were you able to get to where you are today, starting at such humble and small beginnings? So what's really interesting is like you started working at the age of 13, you had multiple jobs, you know, but with a family that didn't really speak English, you know, how were you able to eventually you by the age of 18, you actually started working for NASA in your hometown, they hired you because you did speak some English. So talk to us about You know how you became one of the first speaking English in your family and then you know how you were able to do that given kind of where you were as far as you know economically and then the opportunity with NASA.
2: Sure the NASA piece always gets everyone very curious I'll talk about that So Jamie as I mentioned my you know my parents were from very humble beginnings my father died when i was very young he died when i was 12 so my mom had four kids and she definitely needed help so i needed to work and i started at age you know 12ish 13 and i did everything that could allow me to have some extra income to help my mom but i always kept something on the background of my mind which was Something that my father instilled in my my mind. He always, my father didn't finish even high school. I'm the first person who actually went to university, in both families, father and mother side. But he always said, "Look, education is the only way out. If you don't get an education, you're gonna continue to replicate the cycle." And to be able to get out of here or get out of the circumstances or the status or the social background we currently have, you need to use education as your way to propel yourself up. And I always kept that in the back of my mind. When my father died, I thought, "Wow, what I'm going to do now, I have to work and I have to study. So I did my best. And Jamie, you know, I'd say as humble and difficult of a background as I had, I always went to public schools and I started working part-time and studying part-time. And I always kept in mind of, okay, I will always be the best student in the class. And I was. There were times when the teachers used to use, they, you know, at the time you take notes on hand notebooks. She used to take my notebooks to actually present to the other kids, like, this is how you should do it. (laughs) And I always had really great, grades because I was very diligent. And so I would describe to you and maybe this will be inspiration to others who are listening to this, who are also coming from a small town or you know, humble beginnings. I used to get up like at 5:30 a.m. get on my bike, drive to work or bike to work, walk throughout the day, and I would bring lunch with me. I would eat each lunch in my and in Brazil, you have a mandatory two-hour break. So I used to take my break and then I used to do all my homework in that break. And then I used to bike back to straight to school because I went to school. And this was also obviously not when I was 13. This was a little later, but I went to school in the evening throughout my high school. And so I would go straight to school because my mom worked at the same school where I went to school. And she would bring dinner for me <laughs> and then I would go straight to class and I did class about until like eleven PM and then I would bike back home and you know do everything prepare preparation for the next day and start all over at 5 study again the next day. And I did this for years. And then I wanted to learn English and obviously English is taught in public schools, but it's terrible quality. So I needed to take classes that are were paid classes. And I didn't have the means for that. So I I used to work for a radio station at the time. And the owner of the English school came to the station to try and make an agreement for some, you know, propaganda. And I convinced her to put together a scholarship and use that as an advertisement. And then I helped her to put together the requirements for who would win the scholarship. And I was away studying English on my own for a while. So I said, you know, you should put there as one of the minimum requirements that someone come in and actually is able to held some kind of initial language kind of conversation with you. And of course, I knew I would win it. Because I, <laughs> I had built it for my level. And, you know, I was able to get a full scholarship to learn English. So I would take English classes on the weekends on Saturday, so almost all mornings. And then I would go home and I would practice and listen to, you know, tapes back then and then CDs and, and practice and practice. And, you know practice made perfect and i by the time i was 16 17-ish i was pretty fluent and my high school back then now it's not the case anymore brazil allowed you to have a trade. like in high school you'd learn one specific track and i had accounting for my track so i already had some accounting background and then i had some english pretty good english i was able to write And then NASA was developing this really large-scale biosphere, atmosphere, research in the Amazon region throughout Brazil and even some of the neighboring countries. And they needed someone in each one of these states in the Brazilian Amazon region to help them manage the project locally and then do engagement with the local stakeholders, right, Mm -hmm. agencies, et cetera. And then do project management for them, like, you know, the books of import and export of equipment and transactions and pay suppliers, et cetera. And somehow I found my way to get an interview. And I nailed it because I was the only person who could actually speak with the big English. And that's how I made into this project. So I was hired as a field operator for NASA in a really large scale scientific project There was a collaboration between NASA, Brazil and the European Union, and I was based in Brazil, but my team was based at the NASA Earth Sciences here in the US. My bosses were based here and they would come and visit very often, but most of our communication was online. So back in 19 something, we were already doing online conversations. So although it was all via email, so no no Zoom back then. Mm -hmm. So I, I hope this eliminates a little bit about the whole NASA thing. And obviously everyone thinks about so, NASA as an astronaut, and, but NASA has a very, very strong earth sciences program. And that's where this project was allocated. Mm.
0: And now a little word from our sponsor, Technip FMC. Macy,
1: you know what I appreciate about them as a sponsor? Is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast was to move the industry forward, and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group, and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. Beyond the DNI, they're
0: also big into technologies. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. Their core focus is on the energy transition, emerging materials, and digital industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like iProduction, iComplete, eMission, and IEPCI, go to techniquefmc.com. And now, back to the show. So, Kayla... Obviously, with what you've mentioned from your childhood to your teenage years, you were a go-getter. You had big aspirations. It's not very common that you have a teenager getting up at 5 a.m., going to school, working, learning English on the weekends. I mean, you were doing all of that. What was the end goal behind it? Did you have a big dream of leaving Brazil
2: or getting education in the U.S.? What did you want to do with your life at that time? Great question, Lucille. So, I never really had in, like, an end goal that my life would culminate in just moving to the U.S. I actually always thought, number one, I have to have an advanced degree. I have to finish undergrad. I want to get an MBA. And I was already fixated with the idea of doing a PhD. So I was scoping coping with, like how everything that I'm doing right now can reach one day I'm having the highest possible degree and there's no way back into where I came from. So that's <laughs> that was the end goal. But, you know, life in my career in general was not linear. I took various, I had ambitions and I had plannings, but then life influenced it in in various ways. And we can talk a little bit about that, how, you know, my education kind of went together with my career. But the end goal was just to, number one, have a high degree, educational high degree. And then with the hopes that that would lead to great jobs and great income, et cetera. I always knew since I started working for NASA, I always knew that I wanted to do something in the earth science related, environmental related, because I was working. It's so funny. I worked with the people who are actually today the biggest gurus in climate change science right mm-hmm. back then these guys were doing research because the purpose of the research that they're doing was to understand how the amazon climate works and how the amazonian climate influences the global climate and vice versa so i interact with like the largest and the most influential scientists in the world and my thought was okay i really like you know, environmental sciences. And I'm here supporting this project. And because I had to go to school in the evening, I did an undergrad in business, which was the only thing that allowed me to study part time. Mm-hmm. And then when I finished that, I did a business, and MBA. And then I focused in both in the business degree and the MBA, I focused in environmental sciences as much as I could. I took all the electives in environmental science. And then the MBA, I focused in environmental accounting. And then I thought, okay, when the project was about to end, when I was finishing my MBA, I thought, well, where else am I going to go now? And I start thinking, OK, which universities would take me as a student that didn't have environmental sciences as a background, but would give me a career in today's called sustainability and you know, projection of that is ESG. But back then it was just environmental sciences how could i get that career with the background that i had Mm -hmm. so i went on to search for universities that had programs that allowed me to come in and catch up like with the science background and Kayla,
1: can you elaborate really quick? So when you're talking about, you know, you're researching, you're looking for schools, you know, I want to put in perspective for our listeners that this wasn't probably a time where you just jump on Google and you search and everything comes up and you can do it all virtual. And like, cause when you talk about it, you know, I think in my mind, oh, you go on Google and you're like, oh, how do I get to the U S and, you know, <laughs> get, a, get a scholarship at Duke university. Like that's not <laughs> what was going on. So how were you able to do that and find those resources?
2: All right. I'm not that old, Jamie. There was Google back then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it couldn't... like. I feel but, like the last 10 years is uh, where it really took off. Of course,
2: off. it has exponential more. Yes. Because be, right? Well, Google was already around. And by the way, even though I was in a small town, this is the fascinating part, right? There are resources in a small town too, people. Seriously, go look for them because they exist. I actually, from early age, I took coding classes, like... You know, I was really into computers. But anyhow, that's an aside. I started by thinking, so I did some research on the universities, but because I was surrounded by scientists, I mean, these guys were like Institute Max Planck from Germany, all the largest universities in the US. So I started looking around and started speaking with all these scientists and asking them, like, what universities do you know who have this program that is a hybrid of, you know, management, but also science? that I can merge to be able to do an education that is scientifically robust. And it so happens that my boss at the time was an alumna of Duke University. And he said, hey, Duke has the Nicholas School of the Environment. And I went there many, many years ago. And it's a phenomenal school. But I also got to know about EAO. I also got to know about the work that Stanford was doing back then. And I said, OK, these are great starting points. And then I started going to the websites of all these universities. And, oh, my gosh, I almost had a conniption when I saw the cost of these universities for a master's program. And I was like, there's no way I would have to work 50 years to be able to pay one, one semester. And obviously, so my first reaction was like, what are the scholarships that are available? What can I apply for? And even before I finished the MBA in Brazil, I started applying for scholarship left and right everywhere for everything. And then I took advantage of everything that prioritized sciences or sciences and so i end up applying to a lot of things the result was i end up getting very competitive scholarship that is called the fulbright scholarship and fulbright allows you to study abroad and gives you this stipend to leave abroad which is huge when you think about moving from one country to the other but they don't cover tuition i didn't stop there i kept applying for universities and i kept taking the tests preparation right because you have to have English GRI tests in addition to all the other tests that all the other students have to take. And I just, you know, back then, there were like this preparation books that were like this thick 800, 1,200 pages. And I had like a set of 12 of them. And I would do every drill that there was out there. and Anyhow, end up really good grades. Got the Fulbright scholarship. And then Fulbright allows you to come for a preparation immersion project or preparation, and that's when I moved to the U.S. officially, and my first stop in the U.S. was University of Santa Barbara, and I did in the first semester with them, and then I got to know that which university had accepted me, so I got acceptance to a lot of really great universities, including two Ivy Leagues, but none of them offered scholarships. So I went to Duke and I said, hey, guys, I got a Fulbright scholarship. Your scholarship offers stipend and tuition. How about if I come in because I already have stipend, I can give you the stipend back portion of your scholarship so that you can give that to another student and you just give me the tuition just, right? (laughs) And then they said, well, we're still analyzing you for the capabilities academically, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, it took them a while and then, at the end of the day, it was really, you know, obviously they may never, never say that. And I obviously believe that their screening is very strong. And but I think at the end of the day it was pretty appealing for them for the fact that with one scholarship they could service two students. So I end up getting the scholarship, and that's where I did my master's program in environmental economics, and then end up taking a sidetrack there as well and doing an additional extracurricular work on both environmental law and environmental policy.
1: You know, it's just incredible to hear where you came from and how you pushed yourself (laughs) and you got all the way to the US and not to mention you worked for some major companies. I mean, PepsiCo is a massive organization. I mean, come on, anything with Pepsi product is PepsiCo. So that's just incredible. So can you tell us, you know, You were in sustainability way before, you know, ESG became the thing that it is today. And you've worked across multiple companies from, you know, the Wildlife Fund to, like we were just mentioning, PepsiCo. And, you know, how were you able to move between those massively different organizations that are so culturally diverse, too, because you traveled a lot around the world working for them? what did you see as a similarity when it came to working for these companies within sustainability, even before it became, you know, tagged as ESG today?
2: Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about where I am as well, Jamie. So let's start in reverse, right? So right after I finished my master's program, I actually worked for a large international company called International Paper that produces pulp and paper. And I started with that company in their engineering outreach program where they hire new engineers. And then I started from doing work with the people who actually do the work day to day. And I did everything from working with the, so my responsibility at the time was to provide support to their, at the time, 30 some pulp and paper production mills in the Southeast of the US. And then I learned everything from environmental compliance, environmental audits, safety audits. I did a lot of safety work and in all possible projects, you can imagine that have a company that size and pulp and paper for those who are not familiar with it's a very complex production kind of operation and I jumped in every possibility. So I worked on like how to scope a, a landfill. How do you do projects to do, you know, spill prevention? How do you do air emissions permits? How do you increase the permit afterwards? And I got myself in every project, you can imagine, end up doing a lot of work on helping the engineers and the operators with operations, but also some kind of a workaround putting a program together, right? Mm-hmm. So very incipient or obviously early on, not with the holistic understanding that I have today, but that was a very fundamental part of my career because it gave me uh, understanding, experience, and the ability to understand how you actually do things on the ground and what it requires to get things to stick, right? Because when a company does something and you're an, in an initiative, and if you don't put in place project management around that, normally that phases away with the people. So I learned that quite early. And that, Jamie, was, to me, very important background that kept translating in each one of my positions, and even today. So I went from and paper to WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, helping them manage collaboration with companies who are producers, buyers, or traders, retailers of any product that had to do with the supply chain that interacted with a forest, right? So in that capability, in that function, I end up doing a lot of work with large collaborating with large corporations such as you know, Walmart, Apple, Procter & Gamble, Kimberly Clark, Unilever, and, and many others and, and understanding how they engage with their suppliers, how they produce, where their materials to produce their products come from, how they engage with their suppliers to make change on the ground. And that's why I ended up actually leaving some of the locations, including China at the time, with understanding the supply chain of all these companies. That experience was very different than the international paper experience because it gave me the programmatic kind of C-level, mm-hmm. C-suite level understanding of how a company engages with its with its supply chain, its operations, and its a stakeholder setting that sets their expectations. And that led to the work with PepsiCo because PepsiCo had put out already some goals for themselves and they needed someone who could translate those goals into operational programs to actually make that happen on a day-to-day into the operations. So I was based in the Middle East, but I worked for PepsiCo throughout Asia, Middle East and North Africa, and all their operations there, both on the beverage side or the food side, and ended up doing a lot of work, helping them think through not only all the they had 17 goals at the time, they have Organize that differently right now. But I worked on topics, very, very large topics and very different topics, right? Everything from the circular economy, water stewardship, GHE emissions, solid waste management, you know, community engagement, government relations. Yeah. And all of that translates really well to any other sector that you go because the topics themselves are the same. Now, how you operationalize that into the day-to-day of the company is very particular to that industry, but the topics, what are the environmental, social and governance issues that they're facing, and also varies and the materiality, the financial materiality of that changes according to the industry. But overall, you bring that understanding of system thinking And you are able to apply it to really any industry you go. And that's what led to the next job at Crown Holdings, which had a lot of work around the materials that they buy, right? So all the metals, including all the way to the mining processes. And then working today here at Quantum, it's a similar kind of mindset. You are still thinking about, you know, what are the issues? What are the material issues you have to address? How do you set a target? What are the topics you have to work on that are important to your investors, your other stakeholders, and then how you how you embed that on the day-to-day of your operations? So it's a similar process that is applied differently within different industry, but it was a very similar kind of mindset, thinking you know, holistically, system-wide, how yeah. one influences the other. You know, did you ever think that?
1: you know, given where you came from and, you know, being so close to the environment and seeing the force. And, you know, I, I would think working for like pulp and paper, it would almost be like, you know, your, that's like the forest that you saw now actually kind of being destroyed in a way. And then working for the, wildlife fun, like you're working to protect that as well. And then now, you know, did you ever see yourself going into oil and gas, just given what the outside world thinks of it? Yeah. You know, what was your image coming into quantum? And given your experience in the past, like, did you have any reservations on what the industry would hold? Because quantum does have a portfolio of oil and gas, but also environmental and, and tons of other things too. But what was your your overall impression?
2: Yeah. Great question. I love that. So I love that you mentioned pulp and paper. So with pulp and paper, it's a very similar kind of analogy to oil and gas, right? Yes, you have to cut trees to make pulp and paper, but there are ways you can, number one, grow those trees, not depend on forests that are dedicated for preservations, for protections of habitats and species. And you can grow those trees in a way that allows you to infinitely being able to produce your products and provided what the market is demanding in a responsible way. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's primarily what I did with all the companies that I worked with was trying to help them understand that there were some companies that were deforesting and for that kind of company, we were actually doing a lot of work around awareness raising, but there were a lot of companies who were doing the right thing and then what the right thing entails. Right. So that's a lot of the work that I did there. And that translates really well with the oil and gas world. Mm -hmm. Because so when I came to quantum, my main rationale, Jamie, is, look, just like pulp and paper, no one is going to stop using diapers. No one is going to stop using toilet paper or paper Mm -hmm. towels. We need to find a way to provide that product to the market in a responsible environmental way, social environmental way, right? Similar to energy, we still live in a world where billions, really, of people don't have access to energy. And that demand for energy is going to grow as the population on the planet becomes wealthier and bigger. Mm -hmm. And then we can't shy away from the idea that currently what the sources of energy that we have, it's a mix, right? So you, you depend on while we are investing, and Quantum does invest in renewables, and in all other technologies and services and clean fuels that along the way on the energy transition and decarbonization processes, we acknowledge that oil and gas will continue to play a big role to be able to provide that energy to the growing society for a long time. So the question then becomes, how do you do it the most responsible way, right? How do you embed environmental, social, and governance into the process of producing that oil and that gas and provide that gas to the market in a way that is fulfilling that demand, but at the same time, the most responsible way, right? And that entails, a lot of things that includes working on our gha footprint and that includes methane includes co2 includes all the work that we do with our operators to help them understand what are the best practices that are expected on the market it includes working on subjects like water biodiversity, spill prevention mm-hmm. and many other topics that are very similar to the works that i have done in other in other industries as well so you translate the topic and the mega trend to the industry, but then you go in and you see, you think about it specifically how that translates into the day-to-day of what we do. Mm. And that's pretty much how it culminates with my position here at Quantum, which pretty much means ensuring that we do think about with the lenses of environmental, social and governance in everything we do from the time we are thinking about to invest in a company to the time we're diligence in that company, when we make a decision to invest on them, and then when they become part of our portfolio, they become on board, we understand where they are, we build a baseline, we help them build a work plan that takes them from where they are today to probably three, five, seven years down the road when they're going to exit our portfolio, and we want to be able to show the progress that they made in all the subjects throughout that time, right? So, I think that's how I tie, that's, I think, my background and what I have done before ties in very well with what I do today. And I know that many people might be wondering how in the world, you know, you come from this background of open paper, metals and plastics and, you know, working with an NGO to what you do today. But it takes a lot of skills, understanding project management, understanding the global environmental social pressures and trends and having the science background to understand Mm -hmm. how that translates to the industry and then transforming that into, you know, pragmatic programs that helps companies change day to day. day. Mm.
0: It ties beautifully really at the end to have such a Amazing background. So thank you for sharing. And one of the last questions we had is more on motherhood slash work-life balance. So you're <laughs> pregnant, which congratulations. Thank you. Um how have you felt about being pregnant in a very male-dominated kind of industry? I'm sure you're probably the only woman on the team. Jamie and I spoke about this on one of our motherhood podcasts, but we were scared about our careers. Yeah, you know, like it's in your head, like, what's going to happen next? You hear about this, like, well, once you have a baby, you know, you might not be as successful. What doubts have you had in your mind about being a mother, or has it all been positive?
2: So, Michelle, without saying, you can tell that I'm, I'm an older mom, right? So, I'm going to be an older mom. So, yeah. probably be that mom in the kindergarten where the, the young moms are there. That- <laughs> I feel very fortunate for the people I'm surrounded by right now. So I think, yes, there are a lot of guys around me, but it's so funny because they are almost all my age and their wives have had three kids, sometimes four or two kids. So they are very, they empathize. They are very empathetic to the process and It's very interesting because they ask me questions that even my girlfriends don't ask. They're like, hey, how are you doing? Do you know your due date? And do you know, right? Do you have a birth plan? And, you know, don't forget (laughs) to to pack your bag many weeks before because, you know, there's a possibility it can come earlier because they have had all these experiences. So it's quite interesting. So it's been to me a very pleasant surprise and as you guys can get from speaking with me and you Know the more you talk to me, you'll be able to get that I'm a very active person, and I start squirming if I don't get to do something different every now and then. And I knew from the beginning that I'm not going to be a stay at home mom but just because I need to be intellectually stimulated, I need to feel like I'm contributing. You know, I do give a big shout out to moms who stay at home, and I think that is a job in itself, and maybe. Maybe you ask me this question six months down the road, I'll answer it (laughs) differently. I still think that there is room for you to manage your career, be a dedicated mom. And then for me, that is only possible because my incredibly supportive husband and someone who has been doing everything with me halfway sharing since the very beginning, since day one. So I'm very blessed in that sense. But the answer is that I don't know exactly how it's going to look like, what kind of tricks I'm going to have to learn, but that's the plan. I don't know how it's going to actually unfold. So let's talk about that in three months when he's here.
1: I love that. Well, we are just so happy that we had the chance to sit with you. And, you know, lastly, just for, you know, for our listeners, you know, given your background your experience and everything that you've done, you know, what is the biggest advice that you have learned, you know, through the struggles that you have gone through? I mean, you know, starting out in a little Brazilian town, you know, biking to work at age 13, working late at night to pushing to get into the U.S., finally getting to the U.S. I mean, it's just incredible. What's the biggest advice that you can give to our listeners?
2: Jamie, I would pass around an advice from my grandma. She used to say, hey, nose, don't bite. Do not be afraid of getting a no. It's not going to hurt physically. It might hurt a little bit on your ego and your, you know, initially, but it's better that you get no's early on and then you figure out why and you go around it and you figure out alternatives, then you're not exploring, opposed to exploring and trying, right? So I have a niece right now. My niece is 21 year and she's trying to figure out where she's going to go for a master's program. And she has, it's incredible to hear how the mentality of young people is geared towards Oh, no, but that's not possible for my background. I don't know that, or I don't have that knowledge, or I don't know those people, or I haven't been to that country, or I don't speak that language, or I don't know that company. Oh, they're not going to listen to me. And and my advice is to just turn off that little voice that tells you all these things, and dare, every day, be someone who dares to be against the questioning voice, right? If you don't have the background, if you don't have the intellectual or educational background, go get it. But then be truthful to yourself that you have to put efforts into it. And if you have to wake up two hours earlier, then you do it. But don't accept a no just because there's some stigma or some kind of Formed opinion about who you are, where you came from, and what you do, and your gender or your color, your ethnicity. The world is much more flexible today. There's so much more resources out there. Literally, you can learn how to build a rocket if you go on YouTube. So, <laughs> do not accept a no for an answer. Figure alternatives, and you know, be compassionate to yourself when life throws you a little bit of a monkey wrench. Just Take a step back, you know, dust off and don't give up. Continue to pursue what you're looking for, because at the end of the day, your resilience is going to be your biggest tool through life. And then I'm thinking about the resilience on the motherhood path right now myself. So, you know, I'm saying this to my mom self here as well. But that's what I would say, Jamie, don't take the stereotypes. Don't take the early conceived notions that are around who you are and what you can and what you cannot do. I just love that. Thank you so
1: much for sharing and I love the nose don't bite. So let's remember that.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: So thank it's you so fun. much for coming on Kayla. We really appreciate it and we can't wait for our listeners to hear your story. So thank you again.
2: My pleasure. My pleasure.